0: Welcome to episode 10 of The Afterword, our series of conversations on books, reading, and the church, brought to you by the Westminster Bookstore. In just a minute, our host, Johnny Gibson, will be talking with special guest Kevin DeYoung. Kevin has three books releasing uh, in the next 12 months or so. And uh, as you might expect from from Kevin and those of you who know him, uh, he's covering a, a very diverse range of topics. The first one is called Men and Women in the Church and is uh, essentially Kevin's Complementarianism 101 for, for a new generation. Uh, it's a 170-page uh, biblical primer that is uh, great to hand out to anyone who might have questions about uh, gender roles. Uh, So that one releases in April, but if you hop on over to our website, wtsbooks.com, you can pre-order it for 50% off and reserve your copy and we'll ship it to you uh, as soon as it comes in stock. The second book is a 400-page illustrated Bible storybook and uh, Kevin has teamed up again with uh, Don Clark, who illustrated uh, this one, The Biggest Story. Um, the, the new Storybook Bible will have about 80 chapters from stories from the Old and New Testament. Each will be about four or five pages long and uh, with great illustrations. So parents in particular uh, should be excited about uh, that one coming out in the fall. The third project is a book uh, that will be published by our very own Westminster Seminary Press. Um, And it's the publication of two treatises from one of the founders of American Presbyterianism, John Witherspoon. Uh, So this will be a publication on justification and regeneration uh, from Witherspoon. And then Kevin has been kind enough to uh, write the introduction of, of that one for us. So three books I think you'll be excited to hear more about in just a minute. Uh, But before that, I wanted to squeeze in uh, one more book recommendation for John Piper's Providence. Uh, We've teamed up with Desiring God and Crossway um, to offer you this one at uh, 50% off the pre-order price. Uh, That's just $20, and I think the math works out to be about uh, $0.03 a page. The book will ship in the next week or two, uh, but if you pre-order it today, we'll email you the ebook version of it, and um, you can get a a head start on the the 700 pages. Um, each chapter of this one is just rich and readable, and um, if you've ever benefited from a, a John Piper sermon, I, I really think you can read and benefit from this work. So I encourage you to hop on over to our website, wtsbooks.com, and and pre-order that. Maybe think about picking up a copy for for your pastor or for a fellow uh, friend or book lover. So with that, let me hand it over to Johnny Gibson and Kevin DeYoung.
1: Well, Kevin, welcome to uh, The Afterword, a conversation about books, reading in the church. Uh, It's good to have you on the podcast. Great to be with you guys. Uh, So folk here uh, at the bookstore who've been uh, promoting your books and those who have been buying them are obviously familiar with your books, but uh, perhaps we're not so familiar with the man uh, behind the books. So do you want to tell us a wee bit about your background and uh, how you came to faith in Christ?
2: Sure, just a wee bit would be good. I don't need to go long, but I was born in Chicago, and then my family moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, one of the the high places among us, and I grew up there and uh, went to public schools there, which I know means something different in the UK, But and then went to uh, Hope College, which is one of uh, my previous denominations, colleges. I grew up in the Reformed Church in America, which is really more of a mainline church, um, quite a bit more liberal than the PCA, not quite as liberal as the PCUSA, but Dutch Reformed Church, oldest Protestant denomination in the country, at least that's what we always said. I don't know if the Episcopalians agree with that or not. So that's my background, Dutch Reformed, and had the privilege of growing up in a in a Christian family. My parents both worked for a radio missionary organization in Grand Rapids, affiliated with the Reformed Church in America, that sought to broadcast the gospel by radio in hard-to-reach places. So very grateful to grow up in a good family and grow up going to church, and one of those boring testimonies that we pray our kids have that I never knew a time when I didn't know the Lord Jesus, and uh, went then graduating from Hope College. I went there initially uh, studying political science. I've always had an interest in political science and politics, and then uh, did some of that, but then switched to a religion major, and then went off to seminary. I had thought ever since I was really a, a, a wee lad that I might want to go into ministry. I had people telling me that. So I went off to Gordon-Conwell Theological seminary in boston a uh, significant reason for going there is because david wells was there teaching at the time and i would read some of his books and was excited to and took as many classes i could when i was there and then was an associate pastor upon graduation uh, for two years in orange city iowa not so named because of any oranges but after william of orange the dutch connection i was there uh, a big church in a small town the church had about 1,000 people, the town had about 5,000 people, and there were like seven or eight other Reformed churches, so it was really like the Dutch Reform buckle on the Bible Belt up there in northwest Iowa. Did that for two years, and then uh, moved back to Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan, about an hour and a half from where I grew up, and was the pastor for 13 years at University Reformed Church And while I was there, that that was an RCA church, and together with the elders, we made the decision in 2015 to transfer into the PCA, which was quite an ordeal, but glad that we did that. And then I moved here in 2017, and I'm the pastor at Christ Covenant Church, just outside of Charlotte, and also teach at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, I should mention, along the way, very importantly, in 2002, I got married— just a little over 19 years ago, had my anniversary last week. And uh, what did we do? We stayed at home and um, thought the kids had COVID, but it turned out they didn't. So we were grateful for that. But that's why we didn't go out. Married to Tricia, who's amazing. She comes from a Christian family as well. And we have nine kids, aged 17 is our oldest, about two years apart, all the way down to a uh, three month old. So that's a little bit about me to be with you all.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm interested in the William of Orange connection. He's a great uh, hero for the Ulster Protestants where I'm from.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, this you'll you'll. uh, So, you know, here, of course, in in the States, celebrating St. Patrick's Day is a big deal. Yeah. And everybody wears green. Well, I had a I had an Ulsterman in my last church, um, from Belfast, and or at least from Northern Ireland. I I assume everyone's from Belfast if they're from Northern Ireland. But, you know, I mentioned something in a sermon because it happened that Sunday happened to fall on St. Patrick's Day, and I said something about green. He came up to me afterward. Oh, Kevin, no, you you know, I won't do my accent. But you don't wear green. You wear orange. Best, yeah. uh, so I I started telling my kids because it's always a big deal. You got to wear green. To your school on St. Patrick's Day, or you get pinched, or I don't know what happens. And so I told my kids to wear orange, and uh, they really took that upon themselves. And their teachers would say, "Why didn't you wear?" They we said, "Well, because we're Protestants," and uh, you know, this is not a Christian school back then, so uh, it led to a lot of good conversations. But yes, we do
1: love the color orange. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, there's the funny story of Ian Paisley, the Free Presbyterian minister, who was a British politician. And uh, he uh, made a motion in the parliament at Westminster that St. Patrick's Day would be a national holiday in Northern Ireland because he said the Catholics think he was a saint and the Protestants think he was a Protestant preaching the gospel even in the fourth. (laughs) So he said, can we all just call it a holiday and enjoy a day off? Uh, Which I think is a holiday, which is good. Um, Okay, so you you were raised in a Christian home don't really have a conversion story to speak about. Do you have a a story about a call to ministry? You've talked about people saying, you know, you should be a minister when you were young, but do you have a moment or an an occasion in your life where you felt, no, this is what I am called to. This is what I want to do.
2: Yeah. I'll give a couple stories about both of those. So one, I, I remember when I was in third grade, I think hearing, uh, a particular sermon it was a traveling evangelist in town I probably I have no idea who it was now I'd probably look back and think ooh there was probably a lot of bad you know theology problems there uh, it was it was at this church in town that would sometimes on the marquee have things like world's smallest evangelist I mean it was that kind of uh, this this guy didn't happen to be the world's smallest but I remember hearing that and i'll use wesley's phrase phrase now feeling like my heart was strangely warmed even as an 8 or 9 year old feeling like wow i, I really i, I want to commit to jesus and so i talked to my parents about it and i talked about joining the church there wasn't a set kind of process of everyone joins the church through confirmation it was young to join the church so um they said well let, let's see how you feel about this um a few months from now, and so I brought it up again. So I was in fourth grade. I joined the church. Had to meet with my elders. I, I had to read with my pastor through the Heidelberg Catechism, and met before the elders, which was, you know, an intimidating experience. They were all very nice to me, but they asked me questions about the catechism and about my faith. So there was definitely, even though I grew up in a Christian home, a, a time and a moment where I felt like I, I really believe this, and I and I want to make this my own. A call to ministry, I first traced to, I think I was in sixth grade, and that same pastor was now leaving to take another call, and he was close to our family, we were friends with them, and so I was very sad that he was leaving, and I think I was sitting there in the church after he announced he was leaving and was crying, and he came up and put his arm around me, and he said, Kevin, someday you're going to you're gonna be pulpit supply for me. And uh, I didn't know what that phrase meant, pulpit supply, I thought it meant wow i got to put your glass of water in there or your your tissues or what sort of supplies are there in the pulpit and he said no you're you're gonna, you're going you're going to be a preacher someday and uh not sure why he saw that from sunday school from i don't know youth group but uh so i had that in my head ever since then and it seemed like as i was growing up you know when the youth group would have the the obligatory youth sunday and you needed to you know, my church would have why they did this. You know, I wouldn't do this now as a pastor, but they'd have, you know, some young teenage guy preach the sermon. It always seemed like, well, Kevin, you should do that. Kevin, you should do that. And so I had uh, affirmation growing through middle school, high school, in Bible studies, Sunday school classes. People would would often say that, uh, yeah, Kevin, this is something that you should think about. So I went to college really thinking of planning on doing Ministry, and then uh, you know, a couple of years knee deep into political science, into some political campaigns, really disabused me of the thought that that's what I wanted to do. I'm thankful for people who you know, you know, Christians involved in that. But I thought, oh boy, I, I do not want to spend my life passing out buttons at rallies or trying to convince people. I want, I want to preach what I know is true, and I want to, I want to preach what the Bible says. And uh, so it wasn't a straight line from, you know, a 10 year old to when I was ordained in 2002. But it, there, there was definitely a, a steady stream of encouragements and thoughts. And I always tell men, you don't have to have that experience as a very young boy. But I, I did from an early age really think, you know, th- this may be something that I want to do with my life.
1: Hmm. And you've spoken about David Wells there. He was uh, one of the attractions to go to uh, Gordon Conwell. Uh, I've personally enjoyed his books uh, that he's written over the years. Has he been one of the biggest influences on your life, or have you had other men that have influenced you towards ministry and then since you've got into ministry?
2: Uh, certainly there are. I mean, outside of uh, you know, just personal relationships with, you know, my, my parents or, or pastors, but thinking of people who have really shaped who I am and my theology and my approach to ministry. So r- r- real quick story. So I'm a freshman in college, and even though I'm at a Christian college, it's, it's a Christian college where lots of people aren't Christians. So I had a, I was having a, a late-night conversation with three guys on my floor and one is a nominal Christian. One is a hedonist, not like the John Piper kind, but a you know, he just wanted to have sex. That's what he thought life was about. And the other guy was you know, like into crystals and watching Ricky Lake. You can Google that if you don't know Ricky Lake. But uh, so they're all—it's kind of three against one. They're asking me all these questions about typical college freshman questions, you know, problem of evil, and what about the, the person who's never heard of Jesus, and how can you believe in hell? and So I had all these things, and I went back to my room that night and thought, man, I, I don't feel like I acquitted myself very well. I need to know better what I believe, why I believe it. And so I found those two little books. They were IVP books by Paul Little, Know What You Believe, Know Why You Believe, and read those through and underlined them. And then I thought, I think I can take a—maybe I can take another step forward in this so my dad, he was he's not ordained as a pastor, he's been an elder, he went to seminary for one year, um, didn't finish, but he had on a shelf at home Calvin's Institutes. So one time when I was home, I grabbed those from him, and I thought, you know what, If I, that's 1,500 pages, about, if I read five pages a day, give myself a break, I can read this in a year, mm-hmm. and that's what I did. And then, you know, a lot of it, I didn't understand what was going on. And so the next year as a sophomore, I and I went from the beverage translation to the battles translation and pros and cons of each. But I didn't know that. I'm just picking up what I can. So I read it again. And it's not an exaggeration to say that changed my life. I'm mean, just first of all, it's just amazing to think, you know, you hear about these people and I'd heard about Calvin my whole life. But you just kind of feel like, well, you can't really read them for yourself. I mean, that's what other people do, maybe a pastor, an expert, and I thought, no, I I can read this. I can understand at least some of it, and I can read it again and understand more of it. So certainly, uh, I cut my teeth on Calvin and mm. um, grew up, thankfully, with, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, and so that was influential. David Wells, reading his, you know, whole corpus of books have been influential on me. Um, I read a lot of Martin Lloyd Jones, I love the Ian Murray two-volume biography. So, and preaching and preachers, even before I was a preacher, would be very influential. Uh, and there's been lots of people. You know, I've I've appreciated a lot about John Piper's preaching, um, Sinclair Ferguson, lots of people that would be normal for folks in our circles.
1: Yeah, uh, that that's interesting to hear the influences early on, uh, we had to read uh, Calvin's institutes at Moore College where I went to get my seminary training and it was the summer reading, you had to sign off that you had read it carefully, word for word. Oh, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad they didn't, have you, you didn't have to sign off that you understood it word for word, just that you had read it. That just before. you had read it,
2: yeah. <laughs> and you know, when I was in college, th- this served <laughs> me, this was pride in my heart, but it kind of served me well. Once I started like reading this really good stuff, I just had in my mind, never trust anything you can buy from a Christian bookstore. Of <laughs> course, I wasn't at the Westminster bookstore, then you can trust yeah. it. But just your regular Christian, I don't trust anything in here. And I had a, uh, an upperclassman who, who said, you know what you got to read if you're into this stuff? Um, just start reading Banner of Truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that served me well. And I read lots of Banner of Truth stuff and read the squint print two volumes of Edwards, I mean, as much as you can, and you're reading a lot of it quickly. So I felt like I had a great opportunity in college to start reading a lot of stuff that usually you start reading when you're in seminary and Mm. really shaped me and set me on a good trajectory. And there's been lots of obviously very influential books and people since then.
1: Mm. So what do you like to read to relax? is there a particular genre if if with nine kids obviously you have a lot of time in your hands uh and uh you know you have three hours in an afternoon to just sit and read every saturday what what, what sort <laughs> of
2: um I, I love to read so that's yeah that's what i do when there's cracks in the day if there ever are if you know the kind of it feels like the goal in every day is get my work done at church and get home and try to get help my wife get dinner and clean up the house and get the kids in bed so that maybe there's a half hour at the end of the day to read something. So I, you know, I read almost all nonfiction. I know I'd probably be a better person to read more fiction. Um, I do really love P.G. Woodhouse, so I've read a lot of his stuff. That's good, just <laughs> unwinding. But yeah, I can pull up right here uh, so, when I finish reading a book, I make a note of what I've read. I put it here in my desk at work um, so that I can make a note of it or put it in my blog so these are the la maybe the these are the last three books I think I read. I finished these all in the last couple weeks so this is probably a pretty good indication of the sort of books I read so um, some people will like me and not like me for this but the Myth of the Lost Cause, Why mm. the South, South Fought the Civil War, Why the North Won. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I had read something earlier in the year from the opposite side. So I'm reading this. Help me uh, understand the South. And so history, Civil War history, American history, I read a lot of that. You guys will be glad to know I got this for Christmas and read it in a few days. Biography of Voss. Yeah. So that was... I love reading biography, so reform stuff, and then I read a lot of books like these are kind of my easy reading, fun books. Um, this one's called Make Time, so this is a kind of productivity, yeah. manage your time, priorities. So uh, I love reading history. If you were to look at my shelf at home, which is where my current books are, it's mostly history, some theology, but I, a lot of kind of current events. So I have a, a reading a couple books on race. I'll sometimes read books on uh, economics, political philosophy, all sorts of stuff. What do you read, Johnny?
1: Um, I'm a bit like you. I uh, don't read fiction, not because I don't like it. I just don't get the time to. My wife's a very eclectic reader. She reads a lot of uh, fiction Marlon robinson I, I read gilead by Marlon robinson and absolutely loved it i thought this is just beautiful writing you're
2: a better person i couldn't get
1: into it yeah I, I i loved it but then i've never followed through with the other books but uh so if i've got some spare time i like a biography i'm reading uh one about jürgen klopp and a liverpool football fan so there's a recent biography. are out. you
2: a real live i meet mean, all of these liverpool fans like where have you really been liverpool your whole life i,
1: I am a i am a genuine thoroughbred you, you maybe don't know this but whilst i count myself an ulsterman i was born in liverpool okay all right you come by it honestly my my mother's claim to fame is that on a saturday night um mick mccartney would knock on the door to a uh, Get her brother to go out to the cavern and uh, watch the Beatles play. My my uncle used to uh, jam with the Beatles, so really, I have a genuine connection to the city of Liverpool. Yes, and uh, well, I'm
2: I'm a I'm a Leicester City fan.
1: Oh yeah, because you had a PhD there, right? Yeah, so, right. I... Got a Northern Irishman in charge. Yeah, yeah, he's doing a good job. The broadge, as they call him back home.
2: Yeah, they can't beat Liverpool, but.
1: Yeah, that's hard to, but that's what I've been reading the Jurgen Klopp biography. But <clears throat> I like theology books if if I've got a bit of spare time, like sort of get my teeth into a book on theology or um, something like that. So, but uh, I find in my first couple of years of um, teaching at seminary here, I don't know how you find it moving church and then also teaching at RTS, but my reading, sadly, in the last couple of years, has just been for preparation. Yeah, and I had to work harder in the last year so to actually make time for pleasure reading. You know, um, do you read with the uh, with the kids or there books as a family? You've read together.
2: Well, y- yes, there are. I-, I should, I should be candid, though. We, we our, our life is very chaotic. And, um, I look at, you know, child one, how much we sat down and read and then a little bit less with child two and a little bit less with chi- In child nine. We're just, uh, I hope you turn out and I hope somehow you learn how to yeah. read and do your, um, but yeah, my, my, my wife is really keen to do so. And, you know, we've, We've had our our kids, you know, a lot of the standard things. So we've tried to introduce them to Narnia and a little bit older to Tolkien. And then there's lots of, we have hundreds and hundreds of kids' books from Dr. Seuss and classics that everyone has, at least in America. Your very fine book. Thank you. Um, We have that one. So... Mm -hmm. Um, Melissa Kruger's new book is kids book is good. Um, Some of RC's kids books were helpful. Some of the ABC books on church history and other things have been fun to do. Yeah, Uh,
1: yeah. Well, now that we're speaking about kids' books, uh, you, you wrote a ch- children's book uh, years ago, The Biggest... Well, I've forgotten the title, excuse me.
2: The biggest Story, How the
1: Big, Snake Crusher sure. or Something Brings
2: Us Back to the Garden.
1: And you have a new kids' book coming out. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about that?
2: So I wrote The Biggest Story. I forget how many, more, how many years that came out. That actually originated years ago as... I think a Christmas Eve sermon or, you know, Sunday before Christmas sermon, I was thinking about what to do. And I had, so I'd written out a story, which got, you know, expanded a bit and became the biggest story. But I read it to my congregation on a Sunday evening, and there weren't very many people there on a Sunday evening right before Christmas. But I said, um, I just want to do something a little bit different. And I said, my dream, you know, would be that we could all be sitting around the fireplace on Christmas Eve and could be reading this and there'd be wonderful pictures and all of this. Of course, I didn't have that. So I just read the story and put it on my blog. And several years later, then worked with Crossway and tried to find an illustrator. And they said, well, you you stop at the Christmas story. What if you finish out sort of the whole arc of redemptive history? And we went through a lot of different potential illustrators and say, well, that's not quite what I'm going for. That's what I couldn't describe exactly what I wanted. I just knew what I didn't want. Mm -hmm. You probably found that too, working with, I mean, the illustrations Mm -hmm. are so important and I can't do any of that. So they found Don Clark, who's great. I think they found him because he had done an album cover for Lecrae, but Don is really talented. He's worked for NASA and Target and done Christian stuff. Uh, He's a Christian and uh, really, just love the color and the pop of his illustration. so that book came out and since then Crossway had been trying to work with both of us and finally we I got my chapters done last summer and Don is still working on the illustrations but we have coming out Lord Willing at the end of this year in the fall the biggest story storybook Bible which is going to be a hundred and four stories. Mm. so you know a, a a big book because Don's doing about four pages of illustrations for each one of those stories. So this is going to be a 400 page, big, thick yeah. book that I hope, you know, same kind of target and tone that kids would enjoy. But like we all know the best kids books are ones that adults want to read and learn something from. So I hope that that's the case. So we, uh, I took 52 stories from the old Testament, 52 stories from the new Testament and wrote about four or 500 words for each one trying to retell the story without taking poetic license so that it's not really the story anymore, but trying to tell it in a way that's kid friendly and then also connecting the dots with theology and redemptive history. And I'm really excited. So it's been like a full-time job for the illustrator, Mm -hmm. you know, to work on that. And he's at (laughs) about story 70 or 75 right now. So yeah, that's coming out. I'm looking forward to that. What, yeah. what was it like? Are you, have you, um, did you like doing a kid's
1: book? You want to do more kids books? Uh, I mean, you know, Josiah at the beginning of the episode described me as a children's author. And I thought yeah. that's a joke, really. <laughs> I just, as you know, it's a personal story of yeah. our death and trying to explain it to my son, Benjamin. Uh, the moon is always round. So, no, I never thought of myself as a children's author. I still don't. Um, the illustrations, Joe Hawks, who did them for us, I, I said, I don't want cartoonish illustration. I, I want real life. You know, this is a real story about a real family with a daughter who died. And so he was very good, very sensitive and uh, did some really nice little touches uh, in the book. Actually, interestingly, we were reading it the other day. It's, we, we now have two little kids who've joined the family, Zachary, who's two, and Hannah, who's one. And it's their favorite book at the minute to read, which is lovely. But we just noticed recently that on the fridge door in the kitchen scene that he had put alphabet letters on the door. And this is before Zachary was in the family or Hannah.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: the letters at the top of the door are Z, A, C. And the letters on the bottom door are H, G, Hannah Gibson and Zach. So we, we sort of think oh, this is a quite amazing there's a Q in there. So if we ever have another child, we're gonna have to call them with a name beginning with Q, you know? So this is all coincidence or providence? I mean, this is- Whatever which way you want to read, yeah. Yeah. Coincidence, providence, totally. Before we had any of those kids- Wow. On the fridge door, so. Yeah, I I have um, a series of five kids books. So whilst I don't view myself as a kids author, I have actually decided to venture into another some other kids books. Uh, it's called the acrostic theology for kids. So it's basically an A to Z or A to Z, as you say here. Uh, and we're doing uh, the acrostic of God, a rhyming theology for kids, uh, the acrostic of Jesus, a rhyming Christology for kids, uh, the acrostic of scripture, a rhyming biblical theology for kids um, and. Uh, the acrostic of salvation, a rhyming soteriology for kids, and then uh, the acrostic of Bible memory, so A to Z on some Bible memory verses. I've pulled in Timothy Brindle, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's the hip hop artist, works mm. here, a Christian guy, friends with Shy Lin. So they're there four line stanzas, so um, Almighty, a and uh, we've got little rhymes to do with each of those so the acrostic of god's coming out in september lord willing so we we've decided great. to go for it and we have uh stanzas on simplicity and trinity and uh veracity uh, so so a few different words but anyway that's some of the kids books we're working that's great. on great well, yeah. i look forward to getting that yeah um and uh not you don't just have kids books in the making of the, I want to come on to your other books that are coming out men and women in the church. But actually I wanted to ask writing the kids book. um, Have you, did you find that easier than writing your other books or harder? What what was that experience like moving out of sort of writing popular level adult books to kids books? Uh,
2: It's both, both easier and harder. So, I worked over the last couple of summers plugging away at these 104 stories. Uh, On the one hand, it's not as hard in that you're not doing extreme research or footnotes. uh, So you can, and and you're coming to Bible stories which are, are pretty familiar to you. And yet, I found it. Really challenging. You know, the biggest story that you can read through that in about 20 minutes, and that was, uh, you know, one level of work to try to kind of connect. What do I, what do I not say? You know, because it's not a good kids' book if it's, you know, I, I write it and you can't ever read through it. So what do you not say? And then with this biggest story storybook Bible, the re, the challenge because it was really difficult was how do I you know, how do I tell the, the story of Naaman washing in the Jordan River and tell it in a way that kids kind of relate and it's sort of fun, and yet I'm not taking all these license with the story itself, so I'm making it different than what Scripture says. And what what's the theological lesson here to draw, without being moralistic, but... There are morals, that's appropriate to draw. So I did find, I had to spend time, even though I knew the story, think, okay, what, so I'd look back, you know, have I preached on this before? What did I say when I preached through these things? And what are the lessons that I want? And then, you know, as an author, when you have a very tight constraint, okay, I have 450 words, mm. and it can't be just 250 or it doesn't fill up, but it can't be 550. That is a real challenge so that, you know, if I sit down and I can generally write pretty quickly. You know, you can get on a roll with, uh, you know, uh, at least a popular level. Academic writing is a whole different thing. You don't get on a roll usually, but a popular level Christian book, you can get on a roll, and boom, you, you know, wrote 1,500 words or something. With, with this, with a kid's book, you just, you can't waste any words. You have to be very careful with every word you're using, and especially when the biggest storybook story, the Bible that we did was 104 stories. Each one had to have its own narrative arc. So you need to think, how do I start this? How do I end this? You can't just get on a roll and write three of them. So I found even though each one, you know, didn't take, you know, a day to write, I could only do about two a day because it used a lot of creative juices and energy. Yep. So now that I've written some kids' books, I, I definitely look at some and I think wow, that person probably did that in 15 minutes, and that's kind of a garbage kid's book, whether people like it or not. There's just, there's nothing. And then the ones that are really good, you think, wow, that's really genius, the, what they yeah. were able to do in a way that gets kids' attention and is fun to read and you want to read it again and again. There There is a kind of genius of simplicity behind it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell us a bit about this new book, Men and Women in the Church, that you have coming out. It's not a kid's book. Uh, but, uh, it's about men and women. Tell us what it's about and why you decided to write it. So I, the, the, the very
2: first book I wrote, uh, it's called freedom and boundaries about the role of men and women in the church. And I, that came out in 2006 and it was, uh, I just used a self-publishing outfit to do it. And, mm-hmm. uh, I wrote it because it was a big issue in my church when I came to University Reformed Church. And the the RCA, of course, had still does women pastors and elders. And my church had always been one of the very few that never did. But some mm-hmm. people wanted to see that, so it it was a very live issue that mm-hmm. I had worked on and wanted to write something that that would not uh, not offend the people wrongly that I was trying to convince and persuade. So I wanted it to be firm yet ironic. So that I wrote that 15 years ago and since then maybe 4 5 6 years ago that publishing company went belly up so you can't get the book anymore. You can go on Amazon and people selling it for $900. I don't I don't think they're probably probably getting a lot of buyers on that. I have somewhere back here like the last 15 copies. So Crossway had been asking me for a couple of years, you know, could we Could we just publish that? Could we, because I had the copyright for it. And I always was hesitant because I said, ah, it just feels like the the conversation keeps changing and and the cultural questions are very different than they were, or at least not very, but some of them are different. So I knew I was going to have to do quite a bit of work to bring it up to snuff. And so this book, which comes out in a couple of months, Men and Women in the Church, is it started out as a revision of freedom and boundaries and the exegetical chapters you know that didn't change a lot so you can still use those i could use those exegetical conclusions but more than half the book is is completely new because it's it's a different moment in history and in the life of the church and the questions are a little bit different so even though there are a ton of books on complementarianism and on this issue of men and women in the church. Uh, um, amazingly, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, amazingly, I felt like as a pastor, where is that one short, simple, clear, mm-hmm. firm, yet not angsty with an axe to grind sort of book that I could just give a church member who's struggling with it or an elder or say, hey, here, here's what the Bible teaches about it. And even though there's lots of scholarly stuff and big, impressive books about it, I I just didn't feel like there was that kind of book. So I don't know. That's what I aim to do. Maybe it it doesn't end up being that, but I think of it sort of as complementarianism 101 for a new generation, even though I know that very term, some people are tired of it, and some people find it useful, and others don't. So I I don't major on the term itself, but just trying to go through the requisite biblical passages— and address common objections, and a little bit of what does this look like in practice, to hold up, not just, yeah, we should affirm this, because I find a lot in our circles, probably the sort of people listening to this, there's lots of people who would, you know, as a, if they have to put on the jersey, they put on the, okay, I'm a complementarian, but it basically means, well, I I don't have women elders. And that's Mm -hmm. they'll be on that team. But when it comes to really Mm -hmm. saying this is good and beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's it's broader than just don't do these two things. It actually the Bible has a lot to say about the way God made us as men and women and why those differences are complementary and yet distinct. So I wanted to write that kind of book and hopefully it will be helpful. It's 150 pages. So I write Mm -hmm. short books.
1: Yeah, uh, it sounds great, Kevin. I think it's courageous of you to do it. And uh, it is a live issue in the church at the moment, but also in the culture, isn't it? You know, feminism's on the rise um, and it's all about equality and the church is feeling it. I, I've seen in even yep. in Sydney, where I uh, lived for four and a half years, when I was there in 05 to 09, women who were paid employees in a church doing ministry among women were called... Um, women's workers or children's workers and in the last five years then the titles have changed to women's minister to bible teacher and I, I personally i don't think it's a whole shift i actually think those titles of minister teacher pastor uh, belonged in as the bible is clear and there's no women called by any of those title scriptures and um but the I think the shift has come because the pressure is there in society to show us you're not misogynist. You're not a chauvinist. You know, what, what do you do with women in your church? Can they do this? Can they do that? So I think it's courageous of you to do it. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Um, let me ask you some questions. You can either answer them or say, yes, I deal with it in the book. So get the book. Okay. <laughs> Was uh junior an apostle?
2: Uh, I, I do deal with that just very briefly. No, not an apostle. Actually, was it in the very last issue of JETS Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society? I think, because I just at the last minute was able to add a footnote. Mm. There was a, there's a new article that just came out. I can't remember her name, but by a woman scholar arguing quite strongly and persuasively uh, against that. And... Mm. Uh, arguing that, first of all, the name was probably male. Mm-hmm. So what I say in the book is you have a lot of ifs. You have, okay, was was the person a male or a female? Um, what does it mean to be, is it this person was an apostle or this person was of note among the apostles? And if this person was called an apostle, is it an apostle in a generic sense, one who's sent out, or is it in a capital A sense? I think by the time you get down to that, y- you, you have a lot of work to do to say this text with those layers of ambiguity at best uh, are going to be some linchpin argument for why women can be pastors or receive some of those titles. So I deal with it briefly in a, a footnote to a
1: good article. Yeah. Uh, was Phoebe a deacon? Did she hold the office of deacon or was she a diakonos servant? Uh,
2: right. There's, this footnote, another one, I just read Bob Kara from RTS. He did a, a paper that was in the last RTS journal um, that he did for the ARP, which I thought was very helpful about women and Phoebe in particular. So yeah, the I mean, the word diakonos is used of all sorts of people, uh, of Peter's mother-in-law, of people waiting and serving. So Phoebe was doing diaconal things and Christians should be doing diagonal things. I mean, you can look at um, Romans 13, the magistrate is called that servant minister of God, but no one understands it to be an ecclesiastical office. So no, Phoebe did not hold an ecclesiastical office, but amen, praise the Lord, Phoebe, along with all sorts of other women, past, present, and future, uh, do diaconal sorts of
1: work in the church for which we're grateful. Mm. Uh, Final, uh, slightly tricky question. Um, Titus two, uh, older women teach the younger women. Uh, do you think that's a basis for women Bible teachers and women ministers, or do you think Titus two is talking about something else?
2: (laughs) That is a good conversation. Um I'm and I'm not smiling because I don't know what to think. I'm just saying how much should I say what I think? I I think that verse has been been given more freight than it can reasonably manage. Uh the obviously what, what Titus is talking about he's going through the whole list of older men, younger men in the four different categories and what he clearly has in mind as a focal point is older women teaching younger women, these things that uniquely older women would be able to teach younger women to do, to love their husbands, to manage their households well. So that that's the focus I want to put on that. Is, Is there a secondary implication that, uh, certainly we can say women can perform a teaching function in the Church, and we give thanks for that in the right context. Uh, Am I grateful for, you know, women's ministries that want women to be well-educated in doctrine in the Bible? Absolutely. Am I grateful for women who want to study that and want to pass that on to other women? Yes. So I'm, I'm very happy for there to be really gifted women teachers in my congregation who teach other women, things from the Bible. What I, what I want to think about with that is, is, is there something unique going on here such that this woman teaching other women about Christology is bringing to bear something of that Titus II variety that's uniquely helping women in their role as women, in which case, yes and amen, um, it gives me a little more pause. If it's, if it, uh, my my worry is we can create a sort of um, secondary track. We won't call them pastors. We won't because we're complementarian, but it's really sort of an in an, an army of women preachers, Bible teachers who do this for women. Mm-hmm. and so it's 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 a very fine line. I'm thankful we have and you know them in in our circles. We and I have them in my church. Women who write books who are really good bible teachers and i love them and thank them for it and they do it without any axe to grind and are very committed complementarians so i'm thankful for that uh i simply don't want it to look like or to be like you know what um we have women preachers we just don't let men in the room
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah yeah becomes a distinction without much of a difference
1: yeah yeah and i think the danger and concern is when the titles are being given two women in these roles that, as I said, in the New Testament, they're only given to men. And the qualification is, yeah, but they're not ordained. Well, then my view is, well, if they're not ordained, don't give them the title. Right. <laughs> and uh, the other thing, the danger I've seen at times is, well, we we need women to teach women how to submit to their husbands, because how would a man know what that feels like? Or, you know, how would he apply that? So what we now need is the man can do the exposition, but then his wife needs to come up or the woman's minister needs to come up and she needs to make the application to the women in the church. Because, of course, the man couldn't make an application to women because he doesn't know what it feels like. And uh, I guess my response to that is, well, then why did Peter write, you know, wives? He didn't get his wife to write that, but he wrote it. And so I think there's the danger, isn't there, with women's ministry that it just starts to take on authority and roles and a sort of a little uh, fiefdom sometimes in churches that actually it, it serves a really good ministry. It's, it's. I think it's mutual edification. It's women encouraging women in the scriptures. I think that's fantastic. My, my wife leads a women's Bible study in our church, but she would never call herself a woman's minister, you know, and yep. it's. women on that kind of authority or role that I think those kind of studies or the women in them that it just becomes a little bit dangerous and and I think starts to traverse away from where scripture actually would keep us you know in healthy yeah
2: Yeah, absolutely and just piggyback on one thought there your your first thought We, we want to be very careful in assuming what our culture now assumes and that is you, we are so locked into our own experiences and only ever speak out of our experiences that if you, if you, you can only speak out of your own identity. So how could a man speak? I mean, it usually just kind of goes one way. I mean, but men can't speak to women and (laughs) white can't speak about anything affecting black people and, and so on. And of course, there's a common sense element in which there's truth there. I mean, we all do have our own experiences, and um, for me to come hard at you with everything that Belfast should be and why are the Irish like this would would be a bit daft, you know, unless I've really studied it. And yet, it's there's a real danger, and I sense more and more of this that we we just imbibe the spirit of the age that says, well. No, of course, as a man, you can't speak to anything that women are dealing with. Well, what, yeah, Paul was telling, giving apostolic commands about child rearing? Mm -hmm. Jesus wasn't married? Okay, well, that's Jesus and Paul, and they had the Holy Spirit. Well, But the model that he's passing on to Timothy and others, right there in Titus, we forget those instructions in Titus 2 are not directly... Addressing older women, younger women, it's Titus, tell the younger women and the older women mm-hmm. that this is how the ministry is supposed to be. So of course, you know, men can sometimes do this in a very clumsy way. And I'm very happy to that we have godly women at, at our church. And we don't we don't hesitate at all as elders to say, hey, we got a, a really hard case with you know mm-hmm. domestic abuse or a conflict between a husband and wife. By all means, bring women in to those shepherding situations. We we should do that. That's not usurping the elders' authority to call upon women to to minister in these situations or to seek their counsel. We don't say that because you're ordained, you, you are the only ones who have any wisdom in the Church. Uh, and yet, I really share your concern there that we don't de facto give sort of ordination authority or presume that "Mm, I really can't speak to something unless I've experienced it myself. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's very helpful. I'll just make a comment and then one or two final questions. I I think it's the same with uh, the whole same sex. Uh, Oh yeah. Well, in evangelical churches, I think there's the danger we think, well, we need to address this issue. Let's get someone who struggles with it to be the speaker. And I'm thinking, no, let's get someone who doesn't struggle with it who's an ordained minister to speak on what the scriptures say, you know, it's the same sort of issue, but related to a different area, Mm -hmm. that's just an aside. Um, So you've got the kids book coming out, men and women in the church. Um, Just last question or two, John Witherspoon, you did your PhD on him. Um, Those who know their history about Princeton will obviously know about him, but tell us just briefly, uh, why do you think uh, John Witherspoon's an important person or Christians to know about and what do you think we can learn from his life
2: oh that's just you know catnip
1: just telling
2: about talk about your your (laughs) dissertation
1: give us your PhD in one minute yeah
2: yeah right well my my revised dissertation was published last year by Rutledge um you know one of those obscenely expensive academic books that no one will buy or read but it is out there um my my goal in the next five years is to write a proper biography of John Witherspoon, because there really hasn't been a, a proper biography since 1925. There's been other little things that have come out, but with, you know, somewhat academic. So I'd love to do that. And you may know I'm working with Westminster Press to um, have uh, Witherspoon's treatise on justification and regeneration come out with the press, and I'll add an introduction and footnotes and try to uh, help people understand what's going on there. So I, I would love to reintroduce Witherspoon, especially to Reformed and Presbyterian folks and, and ministers. Uh, I think of a lot of uh, dead guys. He's, he's, he's very readable. He's very clear. He's very organized and uh, has, a, has a sense of humor, has a sarcastic side and of course has you know in America if people have heard of him most haven't anymore he's most famous for being the only clergyman to sign the declaration of independence and so people know him more when he came in in his political side and he served for several years in the continental congress and was instrumental as a founding father in this country but he had a whole ministry career with two different churches in Scotland and that was the focus of of my dissertation to try to reclaim him as a as a minister as a theologian i mean he's not a an edward sort of theologian of brilliance and depth mm-hmm. but john newton said uh witherspoon's book on regeneration was the best book he was aware of on regeneration mm-hmm. especially for a popular audience will, will, will william wilberforce wrote a preface for his regeneration and justification mm-hmm. books so in, in his day, he was quite regarded as uh, a significant theologian and one that was very influential. I mean, if, if there is a kind of founding father for American Presbyterianism in, in the formal sense, it didn't start with him, but I mean, really was was Witherspoon gave the first sermon at the First General Assembly, and it was his students from Princeton who, for those first generations, populated all the Presbyterian seats of power and, and pulpits. So he's he's an influential person. Here's a, just the last thing I'll say about him uh, that I think it's worth getting to know because many of us, you know, when I started doing this dissertation, if people had heard of him at all, they would say, John Witherspoon, what? isn't he the guy who brought Scottish common sense realism and kind of ruined old Princeton with that? And a lot of work has been done from Paul Helseth and others to say that, you know, that narrative is not really accurate. First of all, Scottish common sense realism wasn't as bad as maybe everyone thinks. But second of all, he wasn't the conduit for it. And I would love to rehabilitate somewhat his reputation, which Mark Knoll, obviously a brilliant historian, but Mark Knoll and Marsden, key among them, uh, have been very critical of Witherspoon. And so because of Knoll's stature and brilliance, that has trickled down for the last generation or so of Witherspoon being seen quite negatively as a very eclectic, compromised, inconsistent kind of enlightenment thinker who couldn't hold a candle to Jonathan Edwards and brought in all of these confused ideas into Princeton. And I I want to argue that that's not the case.
1: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I uh, look forward to reading it, Lord willing, if you can find it. Uh, in your busy schedule, and uh, it sounds excellent. I'm glad you made the qualification that he's not like the founding father of American Presbyterianism. That was William Tennant, who came from Ulster. Yeah, I, that's right. <laughs> Scotsman actually, uh-huh. but he married he married the Presbyterian, the daughter of the Presbyterian minister in my village in Ireland. Oh, really? Uh, Catherine Kennedy uh, was her name and uh, Catherine Tennant then, and their first son was called Gilbert because her dad was Gilbert Kennedy. And uh, anyway, so there's a connection there to yeah, the log church. And uh, uh, yeah, next time you're in Philadelphia, you must come down the, the Presbyterian Historical Society has John Witherspoon's clock. I think I sent you a photo one time when I was down looking at some log college stuff and uh, they've got Witherspoon's big uh, clock there so you can uh, yeah i'd love to see it make a bid for it uh-huh like the, the kids the nine kids would enjoy that in the hallway
2: yeah they'd destroy it but it'd be good for a few days <laughs> yeah
1: yeah yeah well look kevin it's been uh, great to have you on uh, this podcast the afterward a conversation about books reading in the church i only got through half my questions, so hopefully we can have you on again? I wanted to ask you about reading and writing for sermon prep. So maybe another time we yeah. can focus on that. But uh, thank you so much. We appreciate your ministry uh, as a preacher and as a writer. And uh, wish you every blessing in, in uh, 2021 to you and Tricia and the, the kids.
2: Great. Well, really good to be with you. Thankful for you, for uh, seminary, for the bookstore behind you, for your good works, uh, your brother too. I may see him. I'm going to Scotland, Lord willing, this spring. don't know if I'll yes. see him there, but good to be
1: with you. Yeah, that's great. Great to have you, Kevin. Every blessing. Thanks. Thanks.